0: The following story has been brought to you by StoriesToInspire.org.
1: We read a pasuk every day of our lives. Each generation will praise your deeds. And your might, they will tell over. Stories to Inspire is Mekayim, this Pasuk, every single day, numerous times during the day, to tell over the Niflos, the wonders, the Nisim of Hashem in our world. Ezez Daniel has to have organized Stories to Inspire, which continues each and every day, Hagdil Toyur to be Marbek Vod Shamayim, to spread the glory of Hashem. One evening... I received a telephone call. And that call, I can never forget. There's a young woman on the other end, and she says, Am I allowed to ask a shayla to the Rav? I said, Behoven, of course. She said, I would like to ask, are you allowed to accept a present from an Eina Yehudi, from somebody not Jewish? I answered her, I gave her a full explanation of the idea of not accepting gifts. However, I wanted very much to know what was the source of that gift. The general rule is, when someone calls you for a Shiloh, you can't really ask other things. You've got to respect their privacy. However, this time, I broke my own rule, and I asked her, How is it that you got a matana from somebody from the Amin? She said, I tell you, I work in an office, and there is somebody who is not Jewish, and he's a nice man, and he always makes conversation. It happened to be one evening we had to work there was a project that we were both collaborating on. And I worked on the project, and he was working on the project. It came time to eat supper. He went out to get supper, but before he left, he said, could I bring you back something? I said, no. I wasn't going to have dinner with him. However, when he came back, He brought not only food for himself, but he bought a full dinner for me. And it came from a glatkosha kosher restaurant. At that point, I felt embarrassed. I didn't want to insult him. I didn't want to tell him I don't want to eat. So I sat down and I ate together with him. And we had a discussion. And it was a pleasant discussion. And... Things continued. The next day he began to talk with me and the next day and he got to know me a little bit better. All of a sudden he came in with a present and he said, I have bought this for you. It's for our friendship. I was startled. I was shocked. What could I say? What should I do? To receive a present? I didn't know what to do. Rebbe, I'm very, very confused. I'm very upset. I said to her, would you like my etza? She said, yes. I said, I want you to bring me that present right now. Tonight. You bring it and you put it on my desk tonight. She said, Rabbi... I, I, I'll bring it tomorrow morning. I, I, I'll come another time. Uh, tonight, I, I live in Queens. It, it, it's already dark. I would have to ask my father. I, I said, I want a present tonight. She went to ask her father. Naturally, she didn't tell him what the dilemma was. Her father said, I will take you there early in the morning. She called me back. and that, I was... So grateful for her because I didn't think she's calling back. A person that has such an isayon and was able at least to speak out her heart. I didn't know if she's going to be able to call back and actually follow through. gvura, <speaking in Hebrew> what might? Ugvoroseku <speaking in Hebrew> Yagidu, and I will tell of the might, the mighty deeds in this world. She said, I'm sorry I can't come tonight but I will come tomorrow morning early. I told her, I'm not worried. I'm not worried at all, but you have to put it out of your house. I want you to put it in the backyard, and I want you to put it on the ground. She said, but Rebbe, someone might steal it. I said, oh no. There will be the greatest Shmira. There will be a guard watching it the entire night. She said, "Which guard? What's the Rebbe mean?" I said, "The Satan will keep an eye on that piece of jewelry. That nobody should get it. That it should remain the Nisayun, That it should remain the test for you." I gave her my address. We made up seven o'clock. I daven neitzachamah seven o'clock. I was waiting in this room. Sure enough, she showed up, Bidiyuk, 7 o'clock. She came in, and we began to talk, mohus, crying tears from her eyes. All of a sudden, she showed to me what the present was that he had given to her. That present, Rabbi Sai, is something that shocked me. a gold heart, a very interesting gold heart. She put the gold heart on the desk. I told her, I will take this gold heart and I will give it to a poor Hassan to give to his kala, that he should be able to give to his bride a present because he can't afford it. We continued, You cannot go back to this office. It is too big of a nisayon. The test is too great. The challenge is too great. Every morning we daven, Hashem, don't bring me to a test. You can't put yourself in the middle of the fire every day and expect that you will not get burnt. You got to separate. You got to leave. Baruch Hashem. She was mekabal, besever panim She was mekabal with a smile and promised me that she would leave. And so, I said the story over. The first time I said the story over, my heart was pounding, just remembering what could have happened to Abbas Israel Abbas Torah, one of our own. And I said it over, with a tremendous amount of feeling that I had from my heart. Well, Stories to Inspire picked it up because that's what they do. And Stories to Inspire played it. I went to Queens, a shul, which is unbelievable, in Kew Garden Hills with the great rabbi, Rebbe Nasha. And there when I came out, there was a young man who stopped me before I went into the car with the driver. The young man said, I saw it. I saw it. I saw that story where that girl brought in that heart to you. I said, yes. He said, the same thing happened to me. The same thing. The girl gave to me a present. And I was moved to come here because I knew that if I'm going to keep it, that it's starting to work on my heart and I'm developing feelings and I'm going to turn my back on my family and my community, ultimately the Borei Olam, ultimately Hashem. He then took off the necklace from his neck and presented it to me. I took the necklace and I told him that I was going to give it to a poor Kala that could not afford to give a present to her chasen. Unbelievable. Both of the presents I gave money instead because the makor, the source of the present, has to be pure and holy. I gave the money for the heart to a poor Hassan. I gave the money for the necklace to a poor kala. The greatness of spreading Hashem's glory in this world, the greatness of what the proper usage of the Internet is, is an aimless shire. I thank Stories to Inspire for the work that they do for Klal Yisrael, Reb Daniel, may Chayel El Chayel mitochah and may we continue to inspire Klal Yisrael until we will hear the Pame Mishiahtzidkenu bimheirav Yameinu. Amen. Hey
2: everybody! So, stories to inspire. Number one, kolakavod mazaltov. The stories for inspire for hitting such a monumental occasion. And uh, for this occasion, I'd like to number one, say thank you so, so much to Rabbi Aguilar for everything that he does for Qal Yisrael. And uh, share what I think is my favorite story. Uh, Yeah, I've said this over a bunch of times, maybe you've heard it, but it's just one of my favorite stories. It is a story about Rabbi Levine. Rabbi Levine was once walking next to a a cheder, little, you know, school in Israel, Yidin. And, oh, the winter gets cold in Eretz Yisrael. And he sees all the kids come out, and they're playing in the uh, they're playing in the yard. And all of a sudden, you hear the sound. And it's not the ice cream fan. No, it's the tea man. So back then, they had a guy who would come around, literally with a big hot water urn, with a little fire underneath it, with a propane tank. And he would sell cups of tea. And so he pulls up by where the cheder is, and all the kids come running up. And they have their little shekels in their pocket and they're coming to buy themselves a delicious, hot cup of tea for the freezing cold winter. And as the kids are lining up, so one kid on the side and the kid is freezing. You can see the kid is freezing because you can see the holes by the knees of his pants. His knees are knocking together. And the tea man, the tea man looks at the kid and the tea man says to him, Hey, kiddo, which tea do you want? Which flavor? And the kid just looks at the tea man and says, No, thanks. I don't like tea. The tea man shrugs, and he goes back to the other kids to serve them some tea. Rebari Levine is watching all this. He walks into the yard. Rebari Levine walks up to the tea man, hands him a shackle, and Rebari Levine gets a cup of tea. Rebari Levine turns to the kid and hands that kid the cup of tea. The kid takes the tea with his hand and you know like when you're so cold the first sip you take of a warm drink is with your hands just mm, just taking in that warmth and then the kid makes a bracha and as quickly as his throat can he drinks down that hot delicious tea like literally glugs it down and the tea man he turns to Rabbi Levine and says i don't get it i asked him and the kid said he doesn't like tea To which R.B.R. Levine responded, That's funny. You heard him say that he doesn't like tea. I heard him say I would love a cup of tea, but I'm too poor to afford the shaggo. Ah. Stories. Stories are such a medium to give over so much. And in this one, I feel that so many times people use words, but they want you to hear their feelings, their truth, their heart over the words that they're saying to you. So maybe next time you have somebody say, no, it's okay, or no, I'm not in the mood, they're really shouting out to you saying, please send me some love, send me some attention, send me some heart. I can really use that right now. Kolakhavot, the stories to inspire, Ashre Echev and Mehashem, give you
3: the to keep on going strong, telling stories to Kla Yisrael. Mazel tov to the whole team at Stories to Inspire. It's just an incredible thing, this milestone of sharing 2,000 inspiring stories with the Jewish people. And it's, it's amazing, really, and Hashem should just give you Kayach to continue. Another 2,000 stories, and another, and another. Um, you know, a good story has to have a, a lesson, a moral, a Musar haskil. Sometimes you have to figure out what the lesson is. Sometimes the lesson is in the story itself, and that's the kind of story I'm going to tell you right now. The story starts with an Israeli soldier named Moshe, Moshe Tzur. And he was stationed in the Sinai in 1971. And he says he remembers a day when a jeep full of Lubavitcher Hasidim pulls up, and these Lubavitchers jump off the jeep, and they start giving presents to all the soldiers. And he's wondering, what's up? Why, Why are they giving out presents? And he looks at it, and it says, Happy Purim, a present from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He didn't know it was Purim. And he didn't know who was this Lubavitcher Rebbe. But something happened. He says, he remembers very clearly that receiving the gift, just that somebody cared enough and sent him a present, even though he didn't know who this person was who was sending him the, the, the present, receiving the gift shifted something in him. It shook something up inside. Now, he didn't start looking into Yiddishkeit, not, not right away. But the gift, the receiving of the gift, that, that, that's when everything began to change. Now, fast forward a few years later. He leaves Eretz Yisrael, he goes to Chutz L'Aretz, Specifically, he goes to America, specifically Chicago, Illinois. And as happens sometimes with Israelis, they go to Chutz L'Aretz and they become more connected to their Yiddishkeit. They're searching for something, they're looking for connection. So he, he met the shliach there, uh, Reb Daniel Maskowitz all of a shalom. So Reb Daniel says to this Moshe, you know, you're becoming more interested in Yiddishkeit, uh, I want to bring you to the Rebbe, I want to bring you to uh, Brooklyn, to Crown Heights, to, to 770 Eastern Parkway. And they arranged it, and he went for a uh, private audience. So Moshe goes to, to 770, he meets the Rebbe. The Rebbe starts speaking to him about v'yahav t'oray achar kamei loving your fellow Jew. And then the Rebbe says something to Moshe, he says, you know, it's interesting, uh, the, the, the human body has two main organs, The brain and the heart. Now the brain's in the center where you would expect a central organ to be. But the heart is funny. It's off to the side. And of the two sides, it's on the left side. You know, everything in Yiddishkeit we do, we emphasize the right side. You get dressed starting with the right side. Everything's with the right. Why did Hashem take the heart and put it on, seemingly on on, on the wrong side, off on the left side? Moshe had no answer. He didn't know how to answer He never thought about this and he couldn't come up with an answer on the spot. So the Reva looks at him and says, The purpose of the heart is emotion, and the purpose of emotion is to connect me with you. My emotions aren't for me. My emotions, my feelings, are to be felt toward you so that I can connect to you. So my heart is really for you. And that's why my heart is on the right side. Your right side. When I'm facing you, my heart is on your right side, exactly where it belongs. Because my heart is for you. And in this we see how giving is something that is so natural to us that the Rebbeinah literally designed us, created our bodies, our anatomies, to testify to the fact that we were made to give. My heart is on the right side, on the right side of the person that I'm facing in loving kindness. At that moment, Moshe realized his journey to Yiddishkeit began with the present that he received, the Shalach Monas and Purim. Now that Rebbe was taking him to the next level to become the giver of the gift and not just the recipient. And from that day on, Moshe took off to a whole new level in his spiritual growth and especially as a giver. And he went back to Eretz And he succeeded in business, and he became a great philanthropist, and he built yeshivas and koelos. And that's what it's all about. We were made to give. My heart is on your right side, exactly where it belongs.
4: Stories. Most times when you say the word stories, people think of children. Anyone who thinks that stories are associated with children have no idea the power of a story. I'll just prove my point. What do you remember more? Sefer Vayikra or Sefer Bereshit? Do you remember the book of Vayikra with all its laws? Or do you remember the book of Bereshit? Because it's full of story. Our nation is built on a story. That's what makes us who we are. All of our alachot are the what of the Jewish people. The stories are the why of our people. Why we are who we are. We just celebrated Purim where we read the story. We're going to celebrate Pesach where we're going to sit at a seder and discuss our story, our why. Which is why stories to inspire is such a powerful medium for the Jewish people. Because in a few minutes you get a story that can inspire you, focus you, energize you, enlighten you, and in so many ways change you. I'm going to share with you one story that for me changed so much of how I deal with people. About a young man, his name was Yaakov, he was about 19 years old. He was sick in bed and terminally ill. He told his father, I know I only have a short time left. His father said, no, don't say that, with David. you don't know what can happen. He says, Abba, I know I have only a short time left. He says, and once that day comes, There's going to be a Levaya, there's going to be a funeral. On the day of the funeral, I want you to ask just my ninth grade Rebbe to speak. And with that, Yaakov pulls a paper out of his pocket, and he tells his father, if he asks why, give him this. The next day, Yaakov passed away. And sure enough, the day after that, a father called the ninth grade Rebbe, and he said, my son would like you to speak at his funeral. And the Rebbe spoke at the funeral, not knowing why it was only him. And then a few days later, he comes to pay Menachem Av, he comes to pay shiva call. And he's sitting there with maybe the six kids in the class that are there with him, being Menachem Avil, these parents. And he's talking, and finally, in the middle of the conversation, he says to the father, I realized that I was the only one who spoke. He says, Why was I the only one who spoke? I, I, I was close to your son, but I haven't spoken to him so much since. Why was it only me? The father says, To tell you the truth, I'm not sure. He says, but right before Yaakov passed away, he gave me this. And the father goes into his pocket, takes the paper, and he hands it to the Rebbe. Rebbe unfolds the paper, looks at it, and tears start to stream down his cheeks. And the father says, What is it? He says, Let me tell you. He says, Your son's ninth grade class was a particularly difficult class. A lot of infighting clicks. It was challenging the all-time one day I walked into the classroom, I closed the Gemara, I said, boys, we're not learning today. Everybody take out a piece of paper. And I want you to write one positive thing about each one of your friends. So Moshe wrote something, one line on Yaakov, one line on, on Chaim, one line on Yitzchak, one line on Abraham. Good. And Abraham did the same for Moshe, Chaim, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And everyone did this for each one of their friends. For every single one of their friends. Then I told the boys, "Pass." the papers up to the front to my desk. He says, and I sent the papers to my desk and I cut each paper, cut out each line of what the boys said about each other and I made a paper for each one of those kids. So I made a paper for Yitzchak of all the things that all his friends said about him and the same thing for Chaim and the same thing for Abraham and the same thing for Moshe. He says, your son kept that paper in his pocket his entire life that paper that reminded him of what other people see in him and what other people how other people believe in him that paper that gave him confidence and strength he kept that paper in his pocket until the day he died and then six boys stuck their hands in their pockets and took out their paper paper too they all had saved the paper Because all of us want that paper in our pocket. Something that tells us who we are and who we could be. The strengths that the world sees in us. You want to do something powerful today? Help your friend write that his paper. Help your friend know what makes him great. Give him a compliment. Give him strength. Give him belief. You know what? Write a paper for your friend. Write a paper for your spouse. Write a paper for your children. In fact, write the paper for yourself. Because every one of us needs one of those papers inside of our pocket that reminds us who we are. That story, if you internalize it, can change how you treat everybody. I know for me it has. Because I remember this one line every single day. They'll forget what you said. They'll forget what you did. But they'll never forget how you made them feel. The next person you meet, make them feel something that they will never forget for the rest of their life. There's nothing
5: more powerful than a story. Thank you. About 10 years ago, a friend of mine, Naftali, related to me the following story. And on this special occasion, i like to share it with everyone. Naftali was the outdoorsy type. He loved hiking, canoeing and kayaking. He would sleep outside for a week on end. Go find a mountain, hike up to the top, find some foliage and some water, make a fire, catch a fish. And literally, he did that. And he loved it. Most of us can't imagine it. But he told me I was the cautious type. He used to travel with actual GPS, special phones. And he told me he knows all the crazy stories and he's not interested. True, sleeping outdoors for a week is not the most safe thing sometimes. But he was very cautious and he took courses. He knew what to do. But he told me one time he was kayaking, a simple kayaking trip, him and a friend. For him, a simple kayaking trip is not like for us. We're not talking type 1, 2 rapids. Really serious rapids, rocks, you get thrown off the kayak. But they were wearing life jackets and everything was, we'll call it, relatively safe. And he was cautious, I said. So he always made sure to check the weather not get involved in one of these, we'll almost call them silly situations. Situations that like, why? So one day they set out kayaking. And it was a beautiful, clear day. Sunny. And they were excited. And they started going. And it was a long trip. The river wasn't that wide. But it was a long trip. And an hour or two hours in, in an instant, it went from a clear, sunny day... The skies turned black and it started pouring. Torrential downpour. Caught them by surprise. It wasn't supposed to rain that entire week. And worst off, it was so dark and so much rain, they couldn't find the side of the river. It wasn't such a wide river, but they couldn't find the side. It was pouring buckets. And the two of them are screaming at each other, trying to figure out what to do, quite scared, because being on a body of water when it's raining, is not so safe. So they quickly try to figure out which side of the river is closer, and they start going in that direction. And a few minutes later, they're not reaching the side, and they don't know what's going on, and they really start panicking. And then the unthinkable happens lightning strikes. And they start screaming. That's their life. If it touches the water, they're fried. And after screaming for a few seconds, they realized, wait, we're alive. It didn't hit the water. And then they realized, hey, when that lightning struck, the sky lit up. And they both, screaming at each other, realized they were going the wrong direction. And they were able to now somewhat make out where they needed to go. And they start going in that direction. And he explained to me that they were petrified. It was still boring, it was pitch black. But they were actually hoping for another bolt of lightning. And then it came. And again, they got scared. But this time, they were ready. And they took stock and they looked around. There's no use screaming right now. And they got a clear picture of exactly where they were, where they needed to go. And within a few moments, they were able to reach the side of the river and they were safe. They dried themselves off, warmed themselves up and the rest of the trip went relatively simple. And when he described this to me, it struck such a deep chord. How many times in life are we on that river? It's pouring, it's dark, we're confused. We feel like whatever we're doing is not working. We try to go right, you have to go left. We go one way and we get nailed the other way. We just don't know what to do. Confusion, panic. But then there are those bolts of lightning, those moments of inspiration. Maybe it's a story, maybe it's a speech, maybe it's a few minutes of self introspection, or maybe it's a story that you went through. At those moments, we have clarity. We see the bigger picture of life. And at those moments, we could see that's where the shore is. That's where I need to go. And at those moments, we have to be so careful not to panic, not to scream, but rather take those moments of inspiration, those moments of clarity, and utilize them to cause a change, to make that plan change direction, find the shore. And with that, the lightning, the inspiration will save us. It will pull us to safety. Because when everything is clear, those are the times that we're able to get our
6: life in order. Have a fabulous day. In honor of Pesach, I want to share with you an incredible story. It was Seder night, and Dovi asked his father, for Afikoyim presence, he said, Tah, Can I have a new drone? And his father said, Sure, Dovi. I'll get you a drone for your Afikoyim present." Came Chalemayin, and he got his brand new drone. He was so excited, he went outside, and he started to fly it. And he was flying it high, and it was going far. And as he's flying it, all of a sudden, it goes out of control, and it keeps on going and going. And his drone was gone. He comes back home. He tells his mother what happened. He says, "Dovey, I feel so bad for you. You lost a brand new drone. He says, Ma, don't worry about it. I have betachin. I'm going to daven. And I know Hashem will hear my tefillahs. The drone is going to come back. And I know I'm going to daven. That it should come back to our porch. It's going to come back. You're going to see. He says, Dovi, it might come back. It might not. He says, No, Ma, I'm Tell ya, you. I'm going to daven for it. You're going to see. Days pass by. Weeks pass by. No sign of the drone. Toby tells his mother, Ma, you probably think I gave up on the drone, but I didn't. I've been davening for it. And I know that any day now, it's going to come back. You're going to see. A few days later, there's a package that this woman receives. It's a package from Target. She used to order her diapers from Target. But this time, it came in a bigger box than usual. When she opens up the box, she finds in it a package of diapers and also a brand new drone. She looks at her receipt. Now, she didn't order a drone. And she looks at her receipt, and all it says is a payment for diapers. So she, she's wondering what's going on. Why would they send her this drone? So she calls up Target. She speaks to a representative. The representative says, I don't know. Speak to a manager. I don't see anything here about a drone. She speaks to the manager. And the manager says, listen, lady. There's nothing on my computer that says anything about a drone. Just keep it. And Dovey got back his drone. Dovi felt so good because he felt that his tefillah was answered that day. My friends, we're all davening for our afrikaim in present. We all need a lot of siyata and We need rachameh shemayim. Kelal went through so many tzaras the last year. We, if we have that that Emun Abshutu, like Dovi, if we dive in our hearts out and we have the confidence that Hashem is listening to our the Be'ezah Hashem, this will be the year that our tefillos will be answered. Elioh Hanavi will come bring Mashiach Zikainu. And Be'ezah Hashem, whatever that tefillah that you had, whatever that tefillah you had, it's going to come to your doorstep.
7: Shalom of Rachel. This is Lazar Brody from the Holy Land of Israel. I want to tell you a really moving story about something that happened here in the Land of Israel. It was a family where, heaven forbid, the mom, the mother, she had a very difficult sickness and she passed away, and she left five children. The youngest was about uh, four years old, and the oldest was a young lady in seminar, what we call it, the high school seminar, And it's equivalent to the 11th grade. She was 17 and a half years old. And then her next brother after her was in yeshiva. He was 15. And then the third brother was before bar mitzvah. He was 12. Well, the brother, the 15-year-old brother, he was away in yeshiva. And the girl that the father would work very hard and she'd take care. She'd learn in, in, in school all day long and come home and do housework and prepare meals with unbelievable dedication for her Three younger brothers and sisters that were that stayed at home, that were still at home. So the twelve-year-old brother, he watched how hard his sister worked. And she was a sister, and she was a mother, and she did everything. And she laundered, and she clothes, she baked, she baked, and she made challis for Shabbos. She made the Shabbos food, and she served him food all week long. And was so dedicated. And once he heard her say, she sighed. She was working very hard in the kitchen. She had her homework, and after she finished homework, she went to to do the housework. And she sighed. She says, oh, Hashem, I wish I had a nice gold ring. Okay, she had a grandmother, her girlfriends and a well-to-do family had a gold ring. And she saw the gold ring. She wanted a gold ring, too. Well, the 12-year-old brother went right in his heart. And he started saving money, saving his birthday money, saving his Hanukkah money, and filled all the coins. He could make all his chore money and filled up coins in a jar. Finally, that jar was full. and It was about three months before his bar mitzvah. And he went to a jewelry store. And he said to the owner, he says, do you sell gold rings? He says, look at this little boy with his jar full of coins. He says, yes, I sell gold rings. He says, well, who do you want to buy a gold ring for? He says, I want to buy a gold ring for my sister. And the little boy's voice quivered. And he started crying. He started crying. And the owner said, well, so, yeah, young man, why, why are you crying? Why are you crying? He says, sir, my, my mother died a year and a half ago. And my sister, she's 17 and a half. And... She learns in seminar and she acts just like a mother and she's a sister and she works so hard and she helps my father and she cooks for us and she cleans for us and she wants a, a gold ring and I've been saving up all my money and he puts all the coins on the counter and I've been saving up all my money and I, is this enough to buy a gold ring? So the store owner, the proprietor, he says, wait a minute, wait a minute and I'll, I'll check. So he went out and he bought a whole box of gold rings. And he said to the boy, he said, pick out the ring you think your sister would like. So he looked through and he picked out this ring and he says, uh, can, I, can I afford this ring? This is beautiful. Well, the owner took all the coins and he put in a box, he didn't even count them. And he says, yes, you can afford this ring. And the owner took the ring and put it in a beautiful gift box, like the type of someone would give to a fiance an engagement. And he wrapped it up. It's a nice gift, and he gave it. He says, "Go home, give this to your sister." The little boy ran home, and he give the gave the ring to his sister. He says, uh, my, "My sister Rachel, look, I've got I've got this present for you." And she opened it up. She was amazed. She says, "Where did you get this? It's gorgeous." She says, "At the jewelry store, at the, at the jewelry store, and in the, in the shopping center, the one one close right across right across the neighborhood." Look, she, oh, she says, well, thank you. She prefers... She says, well, where'd you get the money for this? She says, well, I've been saved up. I saved my Hanukkah money. I saved my birthday money. I saved up all my chore money. And I, I saved up the pouring money that I collected. And I, I, I bought you this ring." Well, she kissed her brother and she thanked him. But then she went right away to the jewelry store. And she said, did this ring come, to your, come from your store? And the owner said, yes. And she said to the owner, did how did my brother take this? He says, well, your brother gave me the coins that he saved up in his jar. He says, well, there was five agaralt and 50 agaralt and, and one shekel coins. What the, How could he get enough money for this ring? This ring is hundreds of shekels. So the owner told her, young lady, I gave him the ring, it's fine. The ring is yours. She says, but you didn't have near enough money to pay for it. How can I take this? So the owner said something very profound. Don't ever forget this. He said, young lady, there's some things that are purchased with money and there's some things that are purchased with tears. And that teaches a big lesson. We can't buy anything with money. can't buy everything with money. Many things we can purchase with our tears. The Midrash tells us that Hashem has a jar of tears and when that jar of tears fills up, Hashem is going to build base of Middash and bring us Mashiach. So when you pray to Hashem from the heart, sincerely, with tears, you can believe Hashem is going to hear your prayers, and you've got really good chance that those prayers are going to be answered. And if not answered the first time, they'll be answered the second time, not any second time, the third time. But no prayer ever goes to waste. And don't forget that. There are things that you can buy with money, but much better things that you can buy with tears. God bless.
8: Chazal say, Who is wise? Someone who learns from everyone. Which means it's our task to try to learn from every single person that we come in contact with. I learned an unbelievable lesson on how to embrace rebuke, on how to receive ethical reproof when someone comes, rightly or wrongly, to tell you how you need to improve. Normally, we don't like to hear such things. The story goes back a good 30 years when I was at my good friend's house in Muncie whose father, Mr. Nathan Epstein, Nate, showed up just a few minutes before Shabbos. He quickly popped into the car and we hustled into shul on Friday evening. Because he was in such a rush... He didn't have an opportunity to put on a tithe that Friday. So we davened a beautiful Kabbalah Shabbos. And after Myriv, some snarky guy came up to Mr. Epstein and said to him, I kid you not, Hey, Nate, I see you decided to go leisure time this week. And Mr. Epstein smiled and said, Good Shabbos, good Shabbos See to you tomorrow. When the snarky man left, I turned to Mr. Epstein and I said to him, how did you deal with that comment? If it would have been me, I would have said, who died and made you my fashion coordinator? And he looked at me with a smile and said, I learned long ago, anytime somebody gives you reproof, Musser, There's a spark of truth that you can learn from it. Wow. You know what that did for me? Anytime somebody gives me a level of improvement where I need to improve, I think of my Rebbe, my how to receive Musa Rebbe, Mr. Nathan Epstein, that anytime someone says anything to any of us, there's a spark of truth that we can learn from it. Mr. Epstein recently passed and made this story and all the mitzvos and davening and chassadim done by his family and followers serve him well. Rav Navtali, Rav Chaim Ben Yosef David, Yehizekro A special thank you to Daniel
9: Aguila for inviting me to share with you on stories2inspire.org. Another thank you to Chazak for sponsoring, and yet another thank you for Torah Anytime, for spreading this out to the entire world. So my favorite story, it's a short story, is actually from Rav Nachman of Breslov. It's a marshal, a metaphor, and I'm going to share with you the simple nimshal, the meaning of the metaphor, right at the end. Once upon a time, there was a king. He had an only son. Oh, the crown prince. The whole kingdom depends on this young boy. One day he'll become the king. And I will rest in peace knowing that the kingdom has been given over to my own child. One day the prince has gone missing. The king has spent so much money. On the best tutors, scientists, astrologers, even healers, and all types of knowledge, science, math, wisdom, language. And now, his son is missing. The whole palace is in turmoil, until finally, one of the servants says, Your Majesty, we found your son. Oh, wonderful! Where is he? Um, he's under the royal table in the royal banquet room what's he doing there uh, uh, maybe your majesty would like to um, call him out of course oh my son the prince what are you doing under the table come out
0: wap, 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 wap.
9: No, that's not a way to answer your father the king come here now enough of this nonsense we've been searching you for hours wap, 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 wap. what are you playing at what's going to you I am not a prince I'm a turkey wap, 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 wap. What are you doing? You're licking crumbs off the floor, you're a prince. No, oh, I'm a turkey. I, turkeys eat from the floor. We do not eat from plates and tables. <laughs> Call the royal physician immediately. It became quite apparent that the king's son, the prince, was no longer the prince. In his own eyes, he was a turkey prince. Gone mad. How can we cure my son? I've been through all the royal physicians. <laughs> what will be with me? Who's going to take on my king, a turkey prince? <laughs> Finally, one day, after all the royal physicians and physicians from faraway lands have all been exhausted, there's a knock on the palace gates. Who are you? My name is Hakam. I'm a wise man. What do you want? I've come to cure the king's son, the turkey prince. Oh, uh, wait here. The guard then informed the king of this visitor. Oh, let him in. That's what they all say. They're going to cure my son. Oh, he's gone mad. The Hakam came in and told the king, I'm here. To cure your son okay fine good luck and they made an arrangement that the wise man would make signals to the servants of the king and they would give everything that he's already previously instructed them so the wise man removed his clothes and joined the turkey prince who was also completely undressed beneath the royal table and the wise man starts licking crumbs off the floor, just like the turkey prince. Oh, excuse
2: me, who are you?
9: Uh, I'm a turkey, who are you? Oh, we'll, we'll fix it. right
2: we'll I this part of
9: this. Okay, do you want to turn it off? Um, uh, yeah, airplane.
2: Okay. No one's going to call that.
8: you?
9: I'm a turkey. Who are you? I'm a turkey. Well, you don't look like a turkey to me. Well, you don't look like a turkey to me. Hmm. Hmm. After a while of getting used to each other and realizing they're really both turkeys, the hakham <coughs> makes a signal and one of the servants of the king passes him a shirt. Uh, excuse me. What are you doing? Uh, This is for you and one for me. This is a shirt. Humans wear shirts. Turkeys don't wear shirts. Uh, Do you think that just because I'm a turkey, I can't wear a shirt, I can wear a shirt, and I'm still a turkey? Oh, really? Hmm. After a while, the Hakam, the wise man, made another gesture. This time, the servant brought him two pairs of pants. If you're in England, pairs of trousers. I prefer trousers. Now wait a minute. Those are clothes for humans. Turkeys don't wear pants. Uh, excuse me. Do you think that just because I'm a turkey, I can't wear pants, I can wear pants and still be a turkey? Oh, I didn't know that. After a while, the Hakam makes another signal. And this time, they pass him a plate of food. Now,
5: You're supposed to be a turkey! Turkeys eat food from the floor! That's human
9: food! Now, just a minute! Do you think that just because I'm a turkey, I can't eat human food? Hmm! I can eat human food and still be a turkey! Oh! No one told me that! Hmm! After a while, the hawker made another gesture. This time, they passed him two chairs. Turkeys sit on the floor and lick crumbs and go... They don't sit in chairs. Now, wait a minute. Do you think that just because I'm a turkey, I can't sit on a human chair at a table and eat like other people? I I can do that and I'm still a turkey. Really? Hmm. I didn't know that. And they were both now sitting with clothes and eating with a knife and fork and eating regular food. And this continued until the hacham cured the prince, because he was acting more like a prince than a turkey. It says of Breslov that this is really a metaphor. It's a marshal nimshal. For Rav Ba Yochai The great Rashbi tells us in Mishnah in Shabbos, Perak Yud I think it's mishnah base. Call Yisrael B'nai Malachim Hem Every single Jew is a Ben Malach, a Bas Malach The problem is I may not act like one and I might do things that is not befitting of a prince, princess uh, lack of emunah, uh, not always have the right thoughts, Rachmaneletzlan, um, waste a lot of my time on ridiculous pursuits, and I'm not acting as befitting of the true Ben Malach. So comes along with Nachman of Breslev and offers this story to help us understand, every single Jew, even when we're not acting like one, doesn't change our essence doesn't change the way Hashem wired our neshama, our mind we are always a Ben Malach always a Bas Malach no matter how far Hasbushalem, a Jew has fallen away from Yiddishkeit it doesn't change our true intrinsic identity and it's my favourite story for the simple reason that this applies to all of us all the time that the only reason I wouldn't aspire to greater heights in Torah, Yirachemaim, Emuna, B'tachon, is because well, that's for Hasidim, that's for tzaddikim, that's really for you know really special people. And along comes a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and when he takes my neshama away from the body, I discover instantly I was a Ben Melech all along, and Hashem sent me into this world. To come back to him, the king, adorned in as many mitzvahs, Torah, Tefillah, Chesed, ma'asim Tovim, that I can in my lifetime as befitting the child of the king. In the schus of knowing that the Ikka Simcha is, is HaKadosh Baruch Hu created us and HaShem Bachabanu Mikol HaAmim He selected us to be the representatives of his 613 mitzvahs in the world. We should all be zaycha, besimcha, to greet Mashiach tzidkenu b'mhera ve'ameinu. Amen.
10: Hello everyone, this is Shimon Kol from Torah Anytime. Hope everyone is doing well. I'd like to wish everyone watching all over the world a Chak Sameach. And Be'ezat Hashem, we should only hear good news. I'd like to congratulate my good friend from Los Angeles, Daniel Aguilar, the founder of this wonderful organization, Stories to Inspire. You're watching this event right now, the Stories to Inspire event, very beautiful, amazing, amazing speakers. Uh, Daniel, keep up the great work. As a matter of fact, I asked Daniel the other day, I said, Daniel, you have almost 2,000 stories you've compiled uh, on your on your organization, Stories to Inspire. Where did you get most of them? Now, I knew a few of them came from Torah and time, but when he told me around 80% of the stories that he gets is from Torah and time, I was blown away. And that's wonderful. Bezad Hashem, Daniel, Hashem should continue to give you the strength to do your wonderful work, and you should go higher and higher, Bezad Hashem. Also, a very big... A shout-out to our friends at the Chazak organization, uh, Rabi and Yaniv and the entire gang. Baruch Hashem, Torah and and Chazak has been together since day one. B'zat Hashem, we should be together till the end and beyond, B'zat Hashem. Wonderful work Chazak is doing as well. I want to make sure that everyone who's watching this, everyone around the world, is getting something called... The Torah Anytime Daily Dose. Now, many of you get the Daily Dose, and it's hard to exactly explain what it is because they're so amazing and so powerful. But in a nutshell, what the Torah Anytime Daily Dose is, Torah Anytime takes the very best speakers of the world. They take the most powerful, life-changing, impactful two, three minutes of the best speeches from the best speakers. Very special and emotional music is added to it by our wonderful music director, Yisrael And in the end of it, there's a one-line takeaway that gets injected into your heart, into your soul, and stays with you and changes you in a positive way forever. And the feedback that we're getting from people is absolutely mind-blowing. With tears in their eyes, they're telling us that these messages are literally saving their lives, and their relationships, and their happiness, and so much more as well. I want to encourage everyone out there who is not getting the Torah Anytime Daily Dose directly from us every single day to sign up for it. Baruch Hashem, we have over 31,000 people getting it every single day. We have a goal of 100,000 subscribers. So if you have a a smartphone, if you have WhatsApp, even if you have an email address, I'm going to show you right now how to get onto it. And please help us reach our goal of hitting 100,000 subscribers for the daily dose. Take out your smartphones. As a matter of fact, there's no time like now. Let's do it right now. Yes, that's right. You watching across the world, in Africa, in Australia, in London, in Canada. Yes, take out your smartphones right now. I'm gonna give you a number, program this number into your phone. Save it as the Torah Anytime Daily Dose. Here we go. And by the way, it's gonna be right there in the bottom of the screen as well. 929-355-4268. Save that number on your phone as the Torah Anytime Daily Dose. I'll say it one more time. 929-355-4268. Why not? Let's make it three times. 929-355-4268. Save that number on your phone. As the Torah Anytime Daily Dose, that's step one. But you got to do step two in order for this to work. Go to WhatsApp and message that contact you just saved, the Torah Anytime Daily Dose. Message, message the words, add me, A-D-D-M-E. You need to do both steps for this to work. And that's all you got to do. How long will it take? 15 seconds? 15 seconds. As a matter of fact, you should also do it for other people as well. I do it all day long. I walk I, when, I'm, when I'm out and about, I meet people. I say, Shalom Alechem, can I give you a gift? I, I, can I have your phone for a moment? I program it in for them. Nothing like doing it for them. And give it back to them. They're like, what is it? You'll see what it is. You'll thank me later. Goodbye. Just imagine doing that to someone who will change their life. And if you don't have WhatsApp, please do not get WhatsApp for this purpose. We do have a Daily Dose email broadcast. All you have to do is message your full name uh, uh, to DailyDose Email at TorahAnytime.com. Again, it's right there in the bottom of the screen. Daily Dose Email at, I'm sorry, Daily Dose, yes, Daily Dose Email at TorahAnytime.com. One more time, Daily Dose Email at TorahAnytime.com. Message your full name and the words, add me. And you could even put other people's email addresses. Imagine them getting this gift, they don't even know where it came from. They'll be like, wow, thank you so much. It's a wonderful thing to do. So uh, with that, again, I'd like to uh, congratulate Stories to Inspire for making this wonderful event and Chazak as well. All the very best to everyone all over the world. We should see Mashiach speedily in our days. Take care.
0: Hello, my name is Chanoch Teller, and I'm here to tell you a story about how one small little act can make a very significant difference. Everyone in Kippur is the most crowded day in the Men Mikveh. It's in my neighborhood in Jerusalem, which is a very devout neighborhood, it's so crowded and noisy and boisterous. Everybody's on top of each other. every wishing G'tyotif, g't yar, and it's... Ew. And I cannot describe this to you delicately because in a mikveh, there's no way to conceal because everything is revealed. And it's so boisterous and noisy every wishing good yantav ketiar. And there was one kid from across the street from the Orsamech yeshiva for beginners. How do I know he's from Orsamech? It said on his t-shirt, Orsamech wrestling. I'm just joking. He had a ponytail in an the earring. Clearly he was not a chasid nere And everyone in the mikveh was chasidim you, and your shalming, Again, wishing everybody good yantav ketiar. And this boy placed his palms over his biceps, very apparent to me and to others, that he had a tattoo that was not appropriate for Erev Yom Kippur. I dare say not appropriate for Gansur freilach, but certainly not the Erev Yom Kippur. And the people in this mitra are not especially subtle, about as subtle as heavy metal is subtle. And they're gawking, getting this poor kid who's highly embarrassed, about to step into the pool, and then slips and trips and grabs the rail, and there's this roaring silence in the mikvah. Sphinx-like silence. Picture a forest after a tree is felled. Imagine the mud stadium after mighty Casey, mighty Casey struck out. No one is moving. Before so boisterous, and now it's as if we went deaf. You can hear heartbeats. And this fellow died a thousand deaths as these lewd and gaudy tattoos were flying into the air. Nothing could have been less appropriate for Eretzim Kippur forever flying into the air. I saw him cogitating he'll jump in, into the pool, and he'll never come out. Then an elderly neighbor of mine walked across this, the moist marble floor. This story happened over 20 years ago. And I can still hear in my ears the thwack, 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 as he walked across the moist marble floor, whenever this kid was more dead than alive, and said to this heavily yiddish European accent in English, don't tell him, come on. I also have a tattoo pointing numbers going up his flesh. In other words, you went to your Gehenna, and I went to my Gehenna. Let's begin Yom Kippur together. Spontaneously, everyone over wished him a Getyar, and a Shana Tava. We saw how one small thing can make all the difference in the world.
11: I'd like to thank Stories to Inspire, first and foremost, for this amazing opportunity, and also for all the amazing work that they do for Klal Israel. I'd like to take you back into the 1940s in Europe, there was a couple, Abe and Sarah, and they were an amazing couple. Everybody looked at them, knew this was the couple. Abe was madly in love with with Sarah, and Sarah was madly in love, everything was amazing, everything was unbelievable. Unfortunately, the news was coming out that the Nazis were getting closer and closer to their town, and they realized they had to do something. So Abe was trying to work on all these, uh, you know, getting the documents to get visas to get out of the, uh, you know, to get out of Europe, and all the work that he put in, he was finally able to procure a visa for Sarah. But unfortunately, he couldn't do anything for himself because of his background. He couldn't, get the, he couldn't get the visa. So he goes over to his wife, Sarah, and he says, my darling, please, you have to go. Go. You have an aunt in California. Go to California. Let me work on the visa. And then I'll, I'll meet with you when I, when I get the visa. And Sarah was like, absolutely not. I am not leaving you. I'm staying wherever you go. I go. And they were going back and forth, back and forth. Sarah was not having it. So, didn't want to fight with his wife, so he kept on trying. A day, two days go by, three days go by. Finally, he hears that the Nazis are very close. Any day, they're entering. He doesn't speak to Sarah anymore, and he goes and he buys her a ticket out to go to, uh, to, to Los Angeles to her aunt. And the day comes when she is, she's supposed to board the train to leave the, to leave the town. An hour before the, the boarding time, he starts packing up her bags. And uh, Sarah looks at Abe and says, what are you doing? And he's like, I- I'm packing up uh, your bags. She's like, where are we going? And he's like, you're going to your aunt in, uh, you know, in Los Angeles. I- I'm still working over here. And Sarah's like, absolutely not. We spoke about this. I- I'm not going. I'm staying wherever you are. And Abe goes over to Sarah and he goes over to her and says, listen, my darling, my love of my life, if something happens to you because you stay with me, I will never be able to live with myself. Please, I am begging you, please go. Please, You go. To Los Angeles, and I'll make it there in due time. I'm working around the clock, trying to get the papers, but I need, I need to know, know, know that you're safe. Sarah, know, knowing that you know, Abe is right, she starts you know, swelling up in tears, and she doesn't say anything, she stands in the corner. Meanwhile, Abe is packing up the bags, finishes the packing of the bag, and they start uh, you know, going, uh, making the way to the door. And Sarah's still on the bed, and he realizes Abe has to do something. So he goes over to their wall, this was the 1940s. They had one picture of their wedding. He takes the picture off the wall, and he goes over to Sarah, and he says, listen, Sarah, he says, take this, put it when you get to your aunt in uh, in Los Angeles, and once I get there, we'll be reunited, and we will uh, put this in our new home wherever we, we decide to uh, build our lives. And Sarah came to the realization that Abe is right. So she takes the this picture, and she does something that's the most Shocking most horrific thing that Abe could imagine. She takes a picture and she rips it down straight down the middle And Abe is like, what are you doing? That's our only copy. We don't have anything else and Sarah goes over to Abe and says We're not doing I'm not taking one picture. Says, this is what we're gonna do he says I'm gonna take the pic- the picture. She split it right down the middle One side was her and the other side was him. He says I'm gonna take your picture. You're gonna take my picture and then when we reunite, we'll reattach the pictures and we'll put it up on our wall in our future, in our new home. So they said, fine. And they're about to leave. And meanwhile, Sarah was so emotional. She runs over to, to Abe and she gives him the biggest hug that she's ever got. Not letting go, going, getting tighter and tighter. And tears in her eyes. And she goes over and says, Abe, please, I'm begging you. I cannot live without you. Please, please, please make your way out. Please come to me. And Abe, trying to be a man, trying not to have his, you know... Tears, you know, swell up and, and drip down his cheeks. He's like, of course, I love you, and I'll do everything and anything that I can to get to you. He goes, he drops off by the train station, and she leaves. Abe is working around the clock trying to get the visa, nothing doing. Two days go by, the Germans enter the town and round him up. They throw him into the, uh, he jumps from place to place, he ends up in a, in a labor camp. And unfortunately, as the years go by, and he's, you know, stuck in this labor camp, people sort of become like dead inside, the Muslim men. They become, they they lose the the hope of living. They're just walking around as skeletons. No drive to live, no drive to survive anymore. After all that they've seen, after all that they've been through, they've seen, they literally dug graves and watched their own family members being shot and put into the graves and then they had to bury them. They buried their own family. Some of them buried their own, they they had to dig their own graves. The horrors and the, the horrific things that they went through, we should never know from. But people lost hope to live. And some people went, whatever they were able to grab on that would give them the drive, the will to survive, they grabbed it. For Abe, it was this picture. This is the picture that brought him his will to survive. Every night, he goes and he looks at the picture. And he starts talking to the picture. As if she's there. He's like, Sarah, I want to tell you about my date. And he tells him about her, the hardships and the good things and the bad things. And he goes the, the entire day. And after that, he's able to fall asleep. He kept this picture with him day in and day out. Every, he could not fall asleep unless he spoke to his wife, Sarah. His bunkmates thought he was going out of his mind. He's sitting over there speaking to as if she's sitting in front of him. But they realize this is the only way that he could survive. They're not saying anything. The years go by, and the picture gets more faded and more faded So you barely see any resemblance of any, any, any you know, Sarah barely, you could tell her on, that she's on a picture. <coughs> and news comes out that... Americans are coming and they're being liberated and there's excitement in the air. Meanwhile, Abe is working in the, you know, outside in the field over there. And it was a hot day and they're talking about what they're going to do when they get liberated. Who are they going to go see first? to All the different plans that they had. It was getting hot. They take off their jackets and they put it in a pile. <clears throat> After the day of the work was finished, they start making their way back to the, to the bunks. And about halfway back, Abe suddenly remembers. He's like, oh my gosh, I forgot my jacket there. So the, his roommate, which was standing right behind him, says, okay, we'll get it tomorrow. And he says, no, you don't understand. I said, I need to go back. I have my, my picture, my picture is in my pocket, in, you know, in, the, in my coat. And his roommate goes and says, Abe, if you go right now, if you go out of line, they're going to shoot you and they're going to kill you. They don't, they don't ask questions. Where are you going? You're dead. You're a dead man. Just forget about it. Let's go. And Abe knew that they were right. So they started making their way back to the, to the bunks. They get into the bunks and they get into bed. And Abe is talking to his, Bunkmates mates and he's like guys I can't I need to get that picture and his bunkmates were like you got to be out of your mind if you leave now they're going to kill you you can't be let out out of your bunk after night after uh, you know after the the, the, the time comes that you have to stay in you have to stay in if you go out for any reason they don't ask questions they shoot and they don't ask questions even after that he says you have to stay over here and he's pacing back and forth and his friends realize that you know he's going to go and they go over to him his entire bunk goes over to him he says listen he says we lost our family we lost our friends he says see what we have over here this group of guys he says we're the only family that we each have only each other and one guy goes up and he says I lost so much family So says I'm not going to lose you as well not for a picture he says there is the, we're getting liberated we're getting out of here just wait a few more days and we're going to get out maybe a few more weeks just wait and you'll see Sarah in person you'll see Sarah in person you'll be able to speak to her so Abe did realize that they're right and he says fine they try to go to sleep <clears throat> Everybody else falls asleep. Abe cannot fall asleep. He can't fall asleep unless he talks to his love of his life. He can't talk fall asleep unless he speaks to Sarah. And he's trying, he's trying to speak. He needs a picture in front of him. Two, three in the morning, he says, I can't do it anymore. He gets up and he starts sneaking out. And he says, I'm going to do it right. He's going to go in the shadows. And the under, up, above, all over that. He won't get caught. What should have taken him a half hour, took him two hours. <clears throat> it's four in the morning at this point in time. He finds his coat, he grabs it, throws it on, and he's on his way back. And suddenly he notices a bunch of trucks leaving the, you know, the area. And he's like, it's like four in the morning. What? The Nazis were very meticulous on time. What are they doing rushing out now? He hides in the bushes, waits until the cars go, and he makes his way back. He gets finally back to the, to the bunk. And he sees in the distance a light, and his bunk is on. At this point it's like 4 30, 5 o'clock in the morning. And he says, What's what's the light doing on? It's too early. They didn't wake us up yet. Why are they why is that? I don't know. And then suddenly he gets a shock of his life. He says, Maybe they did sometimes they do a random count check. They go into the bunks and they start counting to make sure everyone's there. And he says, Maybe they went to count and I'm not there. My bunkmates are gonna be in trouble. Who knows what's gonna happen? And he sits over there and he starts waiting to for to see what's gonna happen. Meanwhile, there's nothing, not a noise, not a bit. There's no noise whatsoever. He waits a half hour, realizes that nothing's happening, so he starts getting closer and closer to the bunk. He goes into the back of the bunk, and there's a small window over there, and he peeks in. He climbs up, he peeks in. What he sees, his heart stops beating. He turns white as a ghost, and he starts rolling on the floor back and forth. The entire bunk was filled with blood everywhere. His bodies were everywhere. And he goes over here, sitting on the floor. He's going back and forth, and he's swinging. He's like, I I killed my bunkmates. I killed my bunkmates. In his mind, the Nazis came. They did account. They saw that he wasn't there and they, they asked everybody where the missing person was. No one wanted to give it up and they ended up killing you know, everybody all because of him and he was going out of his mind from it. While he's sitting up there and bemoaning his, his ill fate, he notices that the other bunk are also open and he starts going from bunk to bunk into the windows and he sees every situation. is the same story. And then all of a sudden it hit him he says he heard about this. He says that the Nazis wanted to kill the Jews so badly. He says when they found out that the, the Americans are coming, they tried to kill as many Jews as they can and they just ran out. And he goes and he looks and he sees that's what happened. And he's sitting over there. He's the only man alive in this, in this, in this camp over here. He doesn't know what to do. So he realizes they're going to have to dispose of the body. So he did the only thing that he could do. He climbs back into his bunk. And he sits You know, he's over there. He sees his friends. He's, he starts crying. And then he starts apologizing because he takes their blood and he starts smearing it all over his body. And he's trying to make this scene where he's also dead because the Nazis were very meticulous. And when they come to each bunk, they want to make sure they have all the right numbers. They're going to do a cleanup. They're going to do something. So he has to be part of that group. Otherwise, they're going to search for him. So he sits over there. He covers himself in blood. He sits in the pile of bodies and he cries himself to sleep. Suddenly he gets woken up. He doesn't know how much longer after that, where he gets woken up by the sound of Nazis, you know, screaming at each other, barking orders. And he pretends to be, he realizes the situation, he pretends to be dead, which wasn't so hard because he was halfway there already. And he goes and he's sitting in this pile of bodies and the Nazis start coming to the bunk and they start taking other bodies and they take one body after another and then they grab him and he tries to make himself as limp as possible and they take him and he hears him, you know, going back and forth, back and forth and then he's airborne. And he gets airborne and then he, the last thing he hears is a big thud which is his head hit the metal of some sort of truck or something and then he loses consciousness. He wakes up, doesn't know how much longer after that, with tremendous amount of pressure on him and he realizes that he's in a pile of bodies. And at this point, he is bleeding, his head is hurting him, he is under a body, he can't even breathe, and he's like, I'm done. He realizes that th- that's it, he's meeting his maker. And he starts screaming on top of his lungs, I don't care, fine, just shoot me, just shoot me, I want to get off out of it. Meanwhile, he hears there's rumbling you know, coming out from the outside of the pile, and he's, you know, he feels a hand grab him and yank him out. And he is bleeding out of his head and he's, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And the last thing that he remembers is being put on a stretcher. And he thinks, he's like, that's very odd. Why would they put me on a stretcher? And then he loses consciousness. He wakes up a few days later. He's in a hospital ward. And there's a nurse that goes over to him and says, you know, you were liberated. You're free. But she goes over and she says, you know, you're terribly injured. You're going to need a few months just to recuperate. And he's ecstatic. He's like, I made it? I made it? He couldn't believe it that he finally made it. A few weeks go by, and it's time for him to you know, go to the TB, DP camps, the displacement camps, and try to find out any families, any survivors. He goes from place to place. He came to the unfortunate news that he was the sole survivor of his family, realizing that had nothing left of there. He had one stop left to go, and that was to Los Angeles to, to be reunited with his wife. He goes, and he travels to Los Angeles. He reaches to his aunt's, his wife's aunt's door, and he knocks on the door. His aunt, his wife's aunt's open up the door. She stares at him, and then she turns white as a ghost. And Abe goes over to, you know, his wife's aunt and says, uh, You know, is, is Sarah here? And she, she gets white. She starts shaking. She's like, What's going on? What happened? And the aunt goes and says, We didn't know that you're alive. He's like, Yeah, I'm alive. You know, Bar Hashem, I made it, but what, what's the big, you know, like, where, where is Sarah? And the aunt said, you know, we, we made inquiries and we tried to find out. We found out your entire camp was, was killed. And you were amongst one of those that were, you know, killed. You're part of that, that, that whole massacre. And he's like, yeah, but I hear now. I made it. It's like, Where, where's her? She's like, you don't understand. She says, so you know how bad Sarah took this? This destroyed her. She went into depression. She couldn't get out of bed. She, couldn't, she was in a severe state of depression. She, we had to admit her to a hospital. So Abe says, what are we waiting for? Let's go. And, you know, the ant is like, oh, okay, fine. And she starts running out. They, go, they run out to the, go to the hospital. As they're running out to the hospital, there's a little stand of flowers. And Abe says, "One one second. She says, I want to buy flowers. And the ant's like, are you kidding me? Flowers? Who cares? Your, your wife is, is, is sick and she wants to see you. She hasn't seen you in so, so knows how long. Just go. And Abe goes and says, what do you think? The doctors are going to let The shock alone of her seeing me is going to, it could kill her. He says, we have to ease it slowly. Let me get flowers. He takes the flowers and they get to the hospital ward. They get to her to her room. And Abe said, I don't want to see her first. I want you to give her these flowers. And you don't have to say anything. He takes out the picture of her, you know, of, of Sarah, of Sarah. And he puts it on the flowers. And the second that the aunt sees the picture, she starts smiling. She says, you know, you two were really meant for each other. She says, you know, Sarah didn't stop looking at that picture. She hugged that picture. She talked that picture. You really, really were meant for each other. And... He takes a picture, pins it into the flowers, and gives it to the ant. says, Please, just bring these flowers to her. He brings the flowers. The ant goes into the room. And she goes, Sarah, you have a visitor. She's, not, she's looking straight into, into the ceiling. She's not blinking, not doing anything. I says, Sarah, someone very special came to see you. Not interested. says, Look, you have these flowers that you got from someone very special. And out of the corner of her eye, Sarah sees that in the flowers is a little picture. She jumps out of bed, like with energy that they haven't seen in, in weeks. She takes the flowers, she throws the flowers against the wall, she grabs the picture and she says, where did you get this? And at that point in time, Abe walks into the room and Sarah looks at this picture and looks at Abe. And suddenly, their eyes, both their eyes instantly start swelling up with tears. And Abe goes over to Sarah and he starts saying, Sarah, Sarah. And Sarah is going back over to Abe. She's like, Abe, Abe. For a minute straight, they could only say their names. They started swelling up with tears, and they couldn't even take out anything else other than saying each other's names. Abe and Sarah ended up living in Los Angeles, well into their 90s. And if you go into their room in their house, in their living room, there's one side of the room filled with pictures of grandkids and children, and the other side of the room is completely bare. And on that wall, there's a small little picture. On one side is Abe. Another side is a very, very blurred out picture of Sarah. Of Sarah. You know, we come to think about this story. This is a story that how did Abe survive? He survived because he had a desire. He had a will. He had someone to talk to. He had someone to fight for. He had someone that he knew was there for him. He knew he had a, re- a reason to survive. There's so many times in our life where we feel like we're done. Like like we can't go on anymore. So we also have. That's someone that we could always talk to, that we could always rely on, that will always be for us. And that's our Father in Heaven. Every night, you have a hard day, talk to your Father in Heaven. There's no picture, you could just speak. It says that could give us that will to survive, that could give us the desire to go on and, and pursue another day, accomplish so much more. Abe survived because he knew he had to fight for Sarah. It says we too, we could go and we could survive. Because we know that we could go and we have Hashem in our back corner. We have Hashem that we could speak to every single night. And you know what? It's not the worst thing if every single night you start talking to Hashem, telling Hashem about your day, telling Hashem what's happened, what's good, what's bad, and thanking Hashem and asking Hashem and all these things that we have. There's a little spark inside each and every single one of us that has that strong desire. Let us utilize that, capture that, and drive that desire to push ourselves forward to accomplish so much more.
12: Like to share with you one of my favorite stories because this story has a very deep deep moral and a very deep meaning. There used to be a long time ago on a farm farmer whose name was Yankel. And in front of his house was a 25-ton boulder. Huge 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 boulder that you, you there's no tractor, even, I think, that they make that um, could push this boulder. Crazy, crazy, heavy, heavy boulder. It was like part of his, you know, outside of his house. One day he walks out <coughs> on his way to the, to the farm, and he hears a voice from Shemayim. Yanko, Yanko. He goes, what's that? Who's that? Ya Uncle! Hashem, is that you? Yes, it is God. Wow, and you're talking to me? Yes. What can I do for you? Ya Uncle, for the next half hour, I want you to push that boulder in front of your house as hard as you can. Yes, God, yes, God, of course. I'll do that. And he... Walks up to the boulder. Pretty strong guy, uncle, And he starts to push and push. And he's schwitzing, He's sweating. And the veins are popping out of his forehead. And he's pushing and he's pushing. And after half an hour he says, Was that good, Hashem? Perfect. Okay, go to work. Goes back, goes to work. Next day, comes out of the house. On his way to the farm. Yonko! Who that? Is that you, Hashem? Yep! What can I do for you? Yonko. You know that boulder in front of the house? For the next half hour? Push it like you never pushed anything in your life. Half an hour he's pushing, he's sweating, his back's hurting, his veins are popping. Yonko's pushing. Of course, it doesn't move. It's 25 tons. This goes on, everybody who's listening. This goes on for a year, every day. Yankul, are you good? Yes, push the boulder. It goes on for a year. One day, he comes outside, and there's an angel, dark, mean-looking, brooding, nasty angel standing by the boulder. And the angel turns to Yankul and says, Yonko, you know who I am? says, you look pretty mean. I'm thinking you're the satan, the devil. Yep, I am the devil. The says, what could I do for you? Let me tell you something. People think I'm really a bad guy. The devil, the satan, the makatri. I am a bad guy. have a little teeny bit of a heart. Do, did you ever wonder why God is telling you every day to push the boulder? He goes, no. Did you move the boulder this year? He goes, no. He says, I'm going to tell you something you don't know. We came to God, all the angels. We came to God. And we told him that we work. 24-7. And we need a break every day. We need a break. It's too much. So Hashem said, Okay, I'll give you half an hour every day. Comedy relief. He said, Yanko, You, my friend, The half an hour that you're pushing that boulder, you are our comedy relief. I want you to know, when we watch you, you fool, pushing a boulder that doesn't move, we sit up in Shemayim and laugh our wings off. You're ridiculous! Yaakov was a very plain guy. He's like, Are you telling me that Shem? God is using me for comedy relief? And all the angels in Shemayim are are laughing at me? And the Satan says, Yup. And is very upset. and He's very hurt. Very hurt. Next day, he comes out of the house and he hears a voice. Yaakov. Yeah, what? Yaakov. Yeah, what? You know who you're talking to? Yeah, I know who I'm talking to, a Shama. Making a fool out of me every day. Comedy relief. The shutter told me what's going on. You know that I can't move a 25 tons boulder? Why are you doing this to me? And God says to Yanko, "Hold on a second. Did I ever tell you to move the boulder? I never told you to move the boulder. I told you to push the boulder. Your job, Yanko, is to push the boulder. My job when I'm ready is to move the boulder. But I want to tell you something, God says to Yanko. Since I created the world, I have never had a better boulder pusher than you. You are my number one boulder pusher. Really? Never had someone that pushes as hard as you. Your job is to push the boulder, not move the boulder. And you're doing a great job. Really? Thank you, God. And he goes out to work on the farm. And there standing by the corn is the angel and the angel says the devil the satan satan says to yanko what are you so proud of what are you smiling about you're a fool yanko says oh no god just told me that i'm the best boulder pusher since he created the world i'm number 1 and the satan looks at him with his fiery eyes and he says yanko you fool Don't you understand what God's saying? You're the best boulder pusher doing nothing. Because you're pushing and it ain't moving. So God's probably telling you, you're the best do it nothing guy he ever created. I wouldn't be happy if I were you. He was a plain guy. Hashem is saying that he's the best boulder pusher. But something's saying he's the biggest fool. He's like, I don't know. What am I? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get blitzed. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to town. I'm going to the bar. I can't deal with this. Best pusher, no push. I can't deal with this. I'm done with this. I'm not pushing no more boulders. And he makes his way to town to get blitzed, to get drunk, so he doesn't have to deal with all this emotional chaos. And he comes around the corner on his way to town, and there's a wagon. And there's a lady screaming, Help, help! My husband, he was changing the tide of the wagon and it fell on him. He's suffocating, he's dying. Could you run to town and, and get a bunch of people to lift the wagon and save my husband? And Yakel sees a f- some feet sticking out from the bottom of the wagon. He goes, Your husband's not going to make it till I get to town, till I bring people back. He'll be dead. Let me lift the wagon. And you pull your husband out. And the lady says, Sir, we have 500 pounds of cement in the back of that wagon. Nobody can lift that wagon. You got to go get help. And Yank was like, Lady, by the time I get back, he will be dead. Listen to me. I'm going to lift the back of the wagon and when I do that, you pull him out. She says, Unless you're Superman... You're not going to be able to lift the back of that wagon. Whoever's listening, listen very carefully why I love this story. He bends down. He bends down. And he puts his arm underneath the wagon. And he starts to pull up the wagon with the muscles in his arms and his shoulders and his legs that he built by pushing a boulder that didn't move for a year. All that muscle from pushing something that couldn't move comes into play. And he lifts the back of the wagon two feet off the ground. She pulls her husband out. He's gasping for breath. But Yankel saves his life. And she turns to Yankel, And she says, I don't know who you are. But you're my Superman. Wow. Thank you so much. And Yackel says, don't thank me. A year ago, I could not have done this. Your, your husband would have died. Thank a 25-ton boulder that sits in front of my house that won't move. What's the moral and why is this story the one that I chose? In life, many times we struggle and we push and we push and we push and our troubles don't go away and our struggles don't go away and the satan says, what are you doing? You're just making a fool out of yourself. You're a joke. We're laughing at you. What are you wasting your time? You can't do anything. And Hashem says, keep davening keep learning, keep believing in me, keep pushing. And you're like, why should I keep pushing? Nothing changed. Because what God is doing, He's building up something in you, emotionally and spiritually, and sometimes physically, called struggle muscle. What struggle muscle does for a person, it gives that person the power To carry others that are also struggling. But if you did not struggle, you would not be able to help them. So the lesson of the story is that sometimes the rock don't move. It's not supposed to. Hashem is saying, your job is to dive in, to learn, to do mitzvahs push never to give up not to be miyayish my job says Hashem is when the time comes I will move the boulder in your life out of the way that's my job says Hashem that's not your job it's based on this whole story is based on a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos that says it's not for you to finish the job it's for you to start the job God says it's for me to finish the job you push and if it doesn't move, don't worry. When it's time to move, Hashem says, I'll move it. And that gives us the power to go on. And that gives us the muscle that we need in order to carry others. I went through my stuff. The best people to help others are the people that went through what the others went through. Struggle muscle. So, to whoever's listening to this story, Don't give up. Don't listen to the satan. Don't get depressed. Don't get anxious. Don't give up. Keep pushing. You keep pushing. And even if the thing that you're pushing to try to get out of the way is not getting out of the way, at the same time, you're building struggle muscle. And that will give you the ability to carry others that are going through the same thing that you are. That's why I love this story. Because this story... Has an amazing moral. Let me tell you the background of this story. Many years ago, we usually make an Ornava dinner during Svia, because people can't go to weddings and people can't go to bar mitzvahs. So that's when we make it, and we get seven, 800 people. But about seven years ago. We couldn't do it for whatever reason during Sphira. We decided to do it in June. And a lot of people said, don't do it in June, because June's all the weddings and the bar mitzvahs and, 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 and graduations, and, 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 you know, it's right after Sphira, and you're not, no one's going to come, but I had no choice. So I got this really rich, rich um, guest of honor and ordered 800 seats in a beautiful, in the Prospect Hall, had a caterer for 800 meals, um, got some music, it was June 15th, I think, and we're going to have this amazing dinner. Two weeks before the dinner, my secretaries come into my office and they're like, Rabbi Wallerstein, we have a major problem. So what's the problem? We only have 72 reservations. The dinner is in two weeks, you ordered 800 meals. We have to cancel. I'm like, but if I cancel, I'm going to insult the guest of honor. He's not going to give me any money. And I'm going to, he's going to be embarrassed. And Ornava can't, we printed already everything. I, I can't cancel an Ornava dinner. No one's ever going to believe there's another dinner after this. I can't cancel it. They're like, if you cancel it now, the caterer said he's only going to charge you this and this. And the whole only charge cancellation fee but if you don't cancel it you have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars and no one's coming I don't know what to do so I went to Shemesh Shabbos down the block to Davin Mincha hoping that Hashem would give me the right kavana the right thoughts of what I should do you know all the men that are listening when you go to Davin Shemona I pretty much have to say Tzul Sederach because I'm all over the place when you're down to your head's all over the place someone told me Tzul he said, I am so far all over the place for doing Shmanasray that when I finish Shhmana Sray, I got a bench gamel. I'm like, on the other side of the world. It's true. Like you, you know, you just you're all over the place. Business ideas come in, other ideas come in. So I said, you know what? When I done Shmanasray, Hashem will say, make the dinner, or don't make the dinner. It was the best Shmanasra I ever done, I didn't have any outside Kavanas. I didn't get any ideas, I didn't get any thoughts. It was like, that didn't work. So I walked out of Mincha. And I was, I'm canceling. I can't take a chance, $100,000 to lose. And the guest of mine, what should I do? And it's a big shame for Ornava. And I walk out, and there's this Rabbi Simcha Salavechik, big gadol. And he sees me. And he comes over to me. And he says, you, you never look, you look very depressed. You're not, you're always happy. Rabbi, Rabbi Wallerstein, tell me what's going on. I told him I have a dinner. 800 people, I only have 72 reservations I'm going to lose my pants over here so I I have to cancel and it's a boucher and it's embarrassment he says, let me tell you a story and he tells me this story I'm not your uncle, he tells me this story and he said your job Wallerstein is to make the dinner it's God's job to make it successful, not you Make the dinner. Okay? So I didn't get it during Shemone yesterday, but Rizak Salavech, is a very holy man. I come back, and I tell the secretaries, we're making the dinner. What? We're making the dinner. I don't care. It's going to be 100 people in the end, not 72. We're making the dinner. Ladies and gentlemen who are listening to my story, do you know how many people came to that dinner? over 800 in two weeks. 72 to 800. What happened? Everyone heard that I was canceling the dinner and it would be a total failure. All my friends who had weddings and graduations and everything came to the dinner in the middle of the wedding, before the wedding, after the wedding, before the graduation, after the graduation, because they didn't want me to be embarrassed. So everyone... Whoever came to one of my dinners came to that dinner because they heard it's going to be a failure so I'm going to go, at least I'm going to help Zechariah show up. They show up and the place is packed! Packed! And they're like, you lied. You sent a message to everyone that you're going to be empty. You were never empty. That whole story wasn't true. But it was true. So this story about pushing the boulder is what made me make that dinner and Baruch Hashem we raised a lot of money so never give up just keep pushing and Hashem's job would be to move that boulder and that is why I feel that we're in gullus, especially after a year of COVID we had a big boulder and we tried a lot of stuff and a lot of people died and a lot of people are not here this Pesach and we pushed, and we pushed, and it didn't seem to move. Baruch Hashem, it did move, and we we're all together, Mitzvah families are together. But through the, whole, through the whole Gullus, we're pushing, and we're pushing, and we're pushing. And what we're growing is struggle muscle. And that's why Klaishul is able to help each other, and to carry each other through this Gullus. And my prayer after this whole story, my tefillah is, that it's time for you, Hashem, to move the boulder. To take that huge boulder, that huge rock, and place it as the cornerstone of the next Beis Hamigdash, of the third Beis Hamigdash. The cornerstone of the third Beis Hamigdash is the boulder that Klai pushed and pushed and pushed, and it didn't move, and Hashem finally decided, and I hope before this Pesach, we can bring the Korn Pesach, that Hashem pushed the boulder into place is the cornerstone the Beis Hamikdash. We should all see Mashiach. Thank you for listening. Bimharei Yemei Noamein.
5: You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you
4: by TorahAnytime